Well, I've, I've got to make an admission, first of all. I asked Beth, I said, Beth, do, do you guys have a pianist? And she laughed at me. <laughs> and I said, well, what are you laughing at me? And she said, if you want highbrow music, opera music, Miss Colleen can do it. So she, she said, don't worry about a pianist. And I'll tell you what, in today's time in society, it is so difficult to get pianist and organist. To get an organist nowadays, they're paying a hundred to hundred and fifty thousand dollars for organists in big cities now. Where is that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you signed a contract at Burr Chapel, so you, you can't lose. So. In Memphis and all the big cities, it's it's horrible. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you and I, y'all do, but I was going to say you don't realize what a blessing you have for your kids. You really do, and I just have got to reinforce that because it's always such a blessing. Uh, music is, it just uplifts the soul so that God can really come into your heart when uh, Beth starts preaching. So uh, thank you for that, Miss Colleen. Appreciate it. Uh, today's scripture is coming from the New International Version. I know that uh, the good uh, IT guy, Dr. Dr. Terry Forrest, got it up there on, as we speak. But this is about the transfiguration, and this is a very interesting Sunday that we worship in. So I want to read you the scripture and then we'll go into the message itself. Uh, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here but if you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elisha. So while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard him, they fell face down to the ground. They were terrified, but Jesus came. He touched them and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I've just had enough. Sometimes I just want to get away from everything. I want to turn off the television. I want to turn off uh, my computer. I want to turn off my phone. I want to just retreat to close the doors and put up a do not disturb sign and then leave the room and go out and just begin hiking as far away as I can. You know, sometimes... I reach the point where I can't even deal with my wife. <laughs> Sometimes I need a space of sanctuary, a space of time when I can just breathe, when I can pray, when I can just recharge my emotional and spiritual battery. Have you ever felt that way? Terry Farr may be the only one I know that just he, he just thrives on that, but that's not me. 
The pressure of everyday life gets to us on a day-to-day basis. And I think it's only natural that we need those spaces. Those spaces that allow us a time to recharge because we deal with so many different things on a day-to-day basis. We experience sensory overload each and every day. Sometimes we seem to give and to give and to give, be it caring for somebody else or helping them or just paying them attention until we finally feel depleted. You know, when you get on the airplane and they say, put on your oxygen mask before you assist anybody else. Well, that's what everybody should do. Instead of sharing Obamacare, helping everybody else at the food bank, she needs to put a mask on and help herself before she goes to the, to the uh, food bank every once in a while. But you know, even Jesus wasn't immune from feeling overwhelmed. As you recall, there were many instances where Jesus had to go away from the congregation and from the crowds to go and pray and to recharge his own battery. A human being, which Jesus was, after all, can only do so much. In today's Gospel account, Jesus has retreated. As you saw, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain. By themselves, we hear. It seemed that Jesus wanted to get away from it all And what a better place to do it than to go to a mountaintop. Only his closest confidants were there with him. This is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Coincidentally, it's halfway into the Gospel of Matthew. For months, Jesus was traveling up and down the Galilean countryside and down the Sea of uh, the Sea of Galilee with his forays into other areas, going to uh, other areas in uh, Israel. He was preaching. He was healing. He was performing miracles. He was proclaiming and living the kingdom of God coming there. But all of a sudden, the focus and the mood changed. It changed because the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked Jesus, do a sign from heaven that tells us that you have authority to do what you're doing. They were basically saying, who are you, Jesus? Well, I'm sure that Jesus must have had some self-reflection on his own part. He was only human. And then he asked his disciples. And you remember what he said. He said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he said, well, who do you think I am? And you remember what Peter said, as always, Peter was impetuous, no matter what the case, and he said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But what did that really mean? It seems that Jesus was reflecting on this question and reflecting on who he really was, even now, since he had been placed on this earth. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and that he was going to undergo great suffering and that he was going to be killed. And on the third day, he arose 
and from now on, the way led to Jerusalem and to the cross. You know, that's pretty heavy stuff. Just imagine if you were one of those disciples and you were trying to understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus had just heard from Peter that he was the Messiah. But if you remember, Peter said he wanted to dissuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem. He wanted Jesus not to go, and he said, God, forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. Jesus was tempted to give in to Peter's idea of a Messiah that did not have to suffer and die. But as you remember, he rebuked Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me. Consequently, Jesus taught his followers about their needs and their responsibilities to take up their cross and to follow him for the sake of God and for the sake of others. And now, here we are, six days later, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountaintop. And uh, they were already physically, mentally, and spiritually exhausted, and here they were. But up on the mountaintop, an amazing thing occurred. Jesus became transfigured before the disciples' eyes. His face began to shine like the sun. His clothes were white as snow, and they were dazzling. And there came Moses and Elijah. Moses represented the Old Testament law. Elijah represented the prophets. And there they are. They appeared with Jesus. What amazing spectacle that occurred. What became clear there, I kept asking myself, what's the importance of this? And this is what it is. Jesus, the Son of God, was destined now to fulfill the covenant between God and God's people. He was destined for glory despite or maybe because of the fact that he would be crucified and that he would die but more importantly, he would rise again. Whatever doubts that Jesus may have had, even then, they may have had up to that point. Here, God affirms his destiny and his identity. There's a reason why every year the story of the transfiguration is on this Sunday, and it's always the last gospel before we go into the season of epiphany with all its symbolism about light and revelation before Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent. The glory of Christ cannot be separated from him giving his life away for the sake of humanity, for the sake of very creation. The story of the transfiguration describes that tension. Then we look at poor Peter. You know, Peter was just such an individual. I mean, he hollers at Jesus not to go and fulfill his destiny. He denies Jesus. And here he is again. He's, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. So he jumps up and said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. This is what I'm hearing. It's good for us, meaning him and Jesus, to be here on the mountaintop. 
far removed from the shadow of death, far removed from the situation that they were going to confront in Jerusalem. But he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. It sounds like a plea almost. Lord, let's don't go down. Let's stay right here away from that trauma and suffering that you're going to go home to. Let's just settle here. Let me build three houses for you. One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. He just wants to stay there away from the reality of life and what Jesus had to do for us. But this time, this was interesting. The rebuke didn't come from Jesus this time. It came from God. It came from heaven. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they are overcome by fear. Now, isn't that interesting? They weren't fearful when Jesus became totally blazing with fire, with light, and his face shone. They weren't afraid when Elijah and Moses appeared. They were afraid when a voice from the sky came out. That was the effect that they had. Maybe it wasn't God's booming voice that frightened them, but maybe it was the message that he was saying. Did he say, listen to him, follow him down the mountain to Jerusalem and to the cross. Any illusion that Peter and James and John may have had up to this point, it was possible they wanted to stay on the mountaintop and just to bask in the glory of being with Jesus and Elijah and Moses without any sacrifice whatsoever was destroyed because <laughs> they knew now where Jesus was going to have to go. Jesus gently touched them. He said, get up. Do not be afraid. What a beautiful scene. James and John and Peter sitting there, probably reclined and just looking, and Jesus touches his friend. There's no reason to fear. What you've experienced up here is real, so just hang on to it. And they came down the mountain, back to where life is happening with all of its joys and with its sorrows and with its annoyances, and they're barely down in the valley when all of a sudden... Jesus is accosted by a man who pleads for help for his epileptic son. I brought him to your disciples, Jesus, but they couldn't cure him. And I wonder if Jesus had second thoughts right then. Maybe I should go back on the mountain because maybe the disciples haven't heard a word I've said. He said, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? But then he healed the boy himself. Now, what does the transfiguration mean to us right now? The purpose of the transfiguration of Christ into at least a part of his heavenly glory was so the inner circle of the disciples would know that, the, that uh, they would have a better understanding of what Jesus had to do. They had been with him all these months, but 
I can conceive. I mean, I wouldn't have understood what Jesus was saying, and they certainly didn't either. The disciples who had only known him in his human body now had a greater <coughs> realization of the deity of Jesus Christ, though they would never fully comprehend it until he died. That gave them the reassurance that they needed after hearing the shocking news of his death. Now, what does it mean to us? Three things. Listen to him. Listen to him. God's voice from heaven clearly showed that the law and the prophets have to give way to Jesus Christ. Moses' representation of the law, Elijah's representation of the prophets are now going to be put in the background. And Jesus said, you covenant would be the one that's important. He was the fulfillment of the law and the countless prophecies in the Old Testament. In his glorified form, they saw a preview of his coming glorification and enthronement as King of kings and Lord of lords. Question is, Jesus is speaking a word to and for you and me, but are you listening to that voice? Then he said, get up. I suspect we've all faced change that has caused us to stumble and to fall, that's paralyzed us or left us overwhelmed. Again, this is not about whether the change is perceived as good or bad. It's about regaining our balance and getting our feet back under us. It's about stepping into the new life when we aren't sure of what looks like and there really is not a new life awaiting us. The, the three disciples, Matthew tells us, fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus touched them and said, get up. But it's more than just get up. It's like he was almost saying something about be raised up, be aroused from the sleep of death, and maybe even be resurrected. Jesus comes to us in whatever circumstances of change we find our lives. Get up, be raised. It's the promise that Though life is changing, it has not ended. Somehow new life is hidden in the midst of change. Even when we can't see it or if we don't believe it, God uses changes, circumstances in our lives to bring us into a new life. I'm not suggesting that God directly causes changes to come upon us. I'm suggesting maybe that God doesn't waste a change to draw us into a new life. And the last thing God, that Jesus said was, do not be afraid. Most of us, I expect, live with some level of fear. I love stability. I don't like change. And I think probably most of you are like that again. But change brings about fear. The fear of losing what we love, what we value, what we desire, and sometimes it's the fear that comes with getting what we want. In the midst of change, Jesus says, do not be afraid. He speaks in the heart of the human condition. Those are the words that we need to hear when we're raised up and back on our feet. His words don't magically eliminate fear, I'm afraid to say. And still, instead, sometimes they're the call for us to take the first step into a new and changed life 
despite the fear that we have. It's an assurance that we have, once again, that change doesn't have the final word. Christ does. We're not called to be fearless, but we're called to be courageous in the midst of change and fear. I don't know what changes that you're going under. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your children or your grandchildren. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your age, your physical, your mental well-being. Maybe it's your work, your job. Maybe you're on a road to recovery and well-being. Maybe everything is falling into place and for the first time, you really feel alive. Listen to Him. Be raised up. Do not be afraid. What if these words of holy wisdom are for us in times of change? What if they're the means by which we step into our own transfiguration? Maybe it wasn't Jesus who changed on the mountaintop. Maybe it was Peter and James and John that changed. Maybe their eyes were open and their seeing changed so that everywhere they looked, they saw Jesus himself alone. Maybe they saw Jesus for the first time as he had always been. If that's true, and I believe it is, then it means that every change, whether good or bad, wanted or unwanted, joyful or sorrowful, is illumined with divine light and filled with God's presence. Listen to Him. Be raised up. Do not be afraid.